Death Triathlon Show 378. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Dr. Jose Areta, who is a lecturer at the School of Sport and Exercise Sciences at Liverpool John Morris University. We will discuss the topic of low energy availability, which you have probably heard about before on this podcast, among others. But I think what is uh, quite unique about this interview is that we go quite deep into I guess the uncertainty and the the paucity of of knowledge that exists around the topic and how much is still to be discovered. So so I guess this episode, if nothing else, will help uh, you not draw too firm conclusions about anything uh, just from calculating a simple number. But before we get into that, big thanks to our sponsors, Form. The Form Smart Swim Goggles give you unprecedented real-time feedback in your swim training through a display on the goggle lens. You can see every split, keep track of your stroke rate, and you can use heart rate through integration with polar heart rate monitors. And all of this will help you execute your swim workouts better uh, through better pacing, better intensity control, and so on. You can also get access to in-depth post-swim analysis in the Form app, where you can see metrics like distance per stroke, and the app will sync your workout seamlessly to platforms like Training Peaks, Strava, Today's Plan, and Final Search. The app also has a vast library of workouts and training plans that you can sync to your goggles and do guided workouts or you can even build your own guided workouts get 15% off the goggles with the code tts15 on formswim.com forward slash tts and thank you to senate the senate indoor swim trainer is a unique trial and swim trainer that allows you to improve your technique power and swim training consistency it is a perfect tool to complement your pool and open water swimming as it allows you to do very specific power and technique work including working on your catch and your core activation and it makes it easier to stay consistent even when you can't go to the pool you can even use it to do activation work before a pool or open water swim or to do swim bike brick workouts more easily you can try to send it risk-free for up to 30 days so if you don't love it just send it back and you can get a special tts bundle including the swim bench and a bunch of senate training plans and on-demand workouts on zenateswinterner.com forward slash tts now without any further ado here's the interview with dr jose areta welcome to that triathlon show jose how are you doing yeah, I'm very good, Michael. Very nice to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, it's nice to have you. Uh, let's start by an introduction. Can you tell the listeners more about who you are and uh, what your research is in and uh, and a little bit more about what has led you to work within endurance sports and science? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm Jose Areta. Uh, currently, I'm a lecturer at Liverpool John Moores uh, University in, the, um, in England, in the United Kingdom. I've been here for about like five years now. Incredible, just that time flies. But I've, I've been doing this uh, work on exercise physiology and nutrition for a number of years. So I'm originally from, from Argentina, uh, trained as a biologist with a minor in zoology. So I have that sort of background. But then I specialized through my PhD on uh, exercise physiology and nutrition um, during the, the, my PhD at RMIT University in, in Melbourne, in, in Australia. And I had a chance to work with really, really great people there. And then I kept specializing in this topic in the Norwegian School of Sports Sciences, where I spent there for about three years as a postdoctoral researcher before ending here in Liverpool, John Moores. And um, I suppose the common thread throughout my uh, research and my work in this area has been like how we can maximize 
uh, adaptation to training by manipulating uh, nutrients. And there's a range of things that we can change to, to do that, um, like, you know, manipulating uh, protein, carbohydrate, and fat. And over the last few years, uh, as I sort of find my the topic that I'm more interested in and more passionate about, I've uh, begun digging deeper and deeper in the area of like energy availability, precisely like what happens to the body when you're not training or you're not uh, eating enough energy in relation to the uh, energy expenditure that you're doing with your training. Yeah, and that is exactly the, the topic that we will discuss today in more detail. So can you start by just giving a definition of energy availability? Yeah, well, uh, energy availability is a, is a concept that I suppose has been built over over the years. Uh, in its origin was more coming from um, sort of studies in, in ecology in mammals in the in the wild, but then it's been applied to to humans and it was when it was applied to humans you know in the early 90s is when this sort of definition of the concept of energy availability took more of a uh, um, uh, more of a sort of mathematical calculation let's say of course there's a concept be- behind the, the mathematical calculation and uh, energy availability is basically defined as the energy available for physiological processes uh, after su- subtracting the uh, e- the energy used in uh, exercise, um, typically what is um, uh, done is, is like uh, normalized uh, against the fat-free mass because it uh, tends to be the uh, most metabolically active tissue. So that's um, you know to be more more precise in sort of the uh, let's call it the arithmetic definition of energy availability is energy intake minus exercise energy expenditure that is normalized to fat-free mass. Of course, there's been different iterations of these calculations through time, but uh, nowadays um, this is possibly the, the, the most up-to-date. And as simple as it, as it sounds, there's really like a lot of nuances uh, to how we calculate this and the origin of it. So I suppose maybe a lot of your listeners maybe want to go out running, grab a calculator, start looking at their uh, energy intake calculated from, from their apps and look at their power meters and energy expenditure, and maybe have an idea of, you know, what energy availability they are in every day. But it's really a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah, I think one thing to point out there when you mentioned that the calculation has changed a bit throughout the years and, and you write about this in in a review uh, paper that I linked in the show notes is that you have to be really careful when you look at reference values from different studies because uh, throughout the years, the calculation has changed a little bit. So, for example, it wasn't always fat-free mass. It was uh, the entire body mass and, and so on. And, and, of course, that changes what the what would be categorized at, let's say, low energy availability versus a normal range. So so that, yeah. that's one thing to be aware of, that, that change. Um, one other thing that I want to ask about is how can you, can you explain the difference between energy availability and energy balance and, and why do we need a different concept than energy balance? Yeah, that's, um, that's, that's a concept that in a way is, um, is quite straightforward, the difference, but at the same time, it can be a little bit hard to wrap your head around it and understand how they are different. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll outline the things that I, I think 
are going to make most of the difference for, for people to, to understand the, the main difference between these two. So uh, energy balance is basically what we think like as an output of the is a, a calculation that is an output that is uh, exercise, sorry, energy intake uh, minus all the energy expenditure processes. And so the value that you get there, for example, if you're in, in energy balance yeah, equal zero, it's just a subtraction of all the other sort of energy uh, expenditure processes, not only exercise, but also like resting metabolic rate, uh, thermogenic effect of food, uh, non-exercise activity thermogenesis and, and others. Um, on the counterpart, energy availability is considered more like an input to the system. So as I said before, it's the energy available for the system to maintain normal homeostasis or like the normal functioning of the system. So uh, in this case, as I said before, is the energy intake minus exercise energy expenditure, which typically is if you're sort of in a normal uh, state of uh, adequate energy availability would be uh, a, a, a positive number. Typically, we think that, you know, what is equivalent to a healthy state of energy balance is about between 40 and 45 kilocalories per kilo of fat-free mass per day in energy availability, at least from what we know from uh, laboratory-based studies. Now, what I think is very, very important uh, to consider is how energy availability can be different from energy balance that you can have an energy balance of zero and it being a healthy energy balance, but you ha can have an energy balance of zero and it being an unhealthy, let's say, energy balance. This is because all the um, energy expenditure processes that are uh, that, you, that your body uh, uh, requires to, to stay uh, functioning uh, may be reduced if you are not consuming enough calories. For example, resting metabolic rate might decrease. Uh, yeah, the economy of, of movement might, might increase. So you are doing the same amount of movement, but you are increasing, but you are decreasing the amount of energy expenditure. You might reduce uh, need. Um, and then when you calculate energy balance, you, you look at the input, you look at the output, and then they are zero. And you might think that someone is in a healthy energy balance, but in reality, they might not be consuming enough calories for what we think might be uh, optimal, though this can be uh, debated as well. Whereas if we consider an energy availability value is more, let's say, is more uh, absolute in the sense that if we know if someone is for a prolonged period of time in, in, in va values of energy availability that are low, we could, it's, it's highly de debated what is low, but just to exaggerate, let's say someone is in 10 kilocalories per kilo of fat-free mass per day for a prolonged period of time, um, and they reach an, an, let's say, energy balance in that case, which I mean that it would take them a long, long while for, for that to happen, then we can see that someone is having low energy, but they are still in a state of energy balance. That's why, in a way, the, the, the values of energy availability can give us uh, an indication of what is uh, the energetic state of an individual independent from all these metabolic adaptations. So, so the reason, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Dan, but just to, to make it clear, so the reason that you can have a 
low value for energy availability but still be in energy balance is basically that if you are in especially a chronic state of low energy availability then the other energy expenditures of the body including resting metabolic rate and non-exercise uh, thermogenesis those processes uh, they would tend to decrease and potentially decrease significantly so so that the energy balances out but you still have potentially an insufficient input to the system for your uh, for uh, complete functioning of all of your systems and tissues yeah this is correct uh, however we you know as a caveat we must know that this is mainly theoretical uh, and it's, it's uh, based on you know a whole range of data there's not really a lot of experimental data supporting this uh, because it's very hard to put someone in a very prolonged period of low energy availability. Um, possibly one of the best examples of this happening is the uh, Minnesota starvation experiment that was happening during the Second World War where there was these um, individuals that were put in a sort of semi-starvation diet for a period of about six months. And then you can see um, all the the basically the total energy expenditure um, matching the energy intake of this individual, so showing a very clear um, decrease in total energy expenditure to match the uh, the energy intake, and that this is over a pe- period of, of six months. So in this case, you see these individuals, you know, that lost a large amount of the of their body weight. Um, uh, by the end of the period of the six months, there was the, the body weight reaches some sort of a plateau where they, they you know, all the metabolic processes match the, the energy intake. So in this case, we think that um, energy expenditure becomes more of a function of the energy intake, really. Mm-hmm. The other yeah, way around. that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and one, one more question that came to mind here is uh, I, from, it seems to me that energy availability will be like the calculation, the formula that you described, it will work quite well for most typical, let's say, modern day endurance athletes that, for example, work in an office, work at their desks, and then they do a fair bit of training beside that. But but in reality, most of their energy expenditure or a large part of it comes from their specific training. But if we have somebody who may be doesn't do so much specific training, but they do a lot of, they have a physical job or things like that, then would, is that a challenge for these calculations? Because because you only subtract the exercise energy expenditure, but, but if somebody expends a lot of energy in their normal day-to-day, then that can be a, a bit of a different situation, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, this is something that is debated when we're working on a, on a manuscript now, sort of deb- debating this. Um, but th- there are uh, several things that have to be taken into consideration about like the limitations of calculation of uh, energy availability. Um, if, if that's okay, I can sort of break, break them down a little bit. And we, when then yep, we will sure. get to the, to the right point, we discussed that what you're saying about the consideration of non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So all the ex, all the energy expenditure that is not exercise that might sort of uh, add to that energy budget. What do you think? Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. Great. So yeah, I think something that we need to keep in mind is that, uh, energy availability in its origins, you know, the concept well, as I say, like the, the origin, origin, the, the first origin is, is more like in, in mammalian ecology and like looking at, 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 at the success of reproduction in different 
um, times of the season with the different uh, food availability. Uh, but then, you know, it, it comes from a, from a, from lab-based work um, in which uh, both energy intake and exercise uh, energy expenditure are very tightly controlled and very, very well controlled. So when we try to uh, take this sort of approach or to take um, the, 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 the calculation that's been developed in this environment, which, which is highly controlled, and, and bring it out to an environment that is a lot more unpredictable and there's a lot more error, it's like a lot less uh, precise, it's a lot less precise and a lot less reliable as it is being in uh, field conditions, then we encounter a lot of problems. This is important because, you know, the, the, the precision with which we can measure energy intake and energy expenditure um, in the field is, is quite low compared to what we can do in the lab. So if we try to bring a methodology of something that is being developed to use in the lab and, and think that because we're able to compute a number, then that number is what it is, then we, we run into problems. So for you to have an idea, the typical error of uh, measurement of uh, energy intake, so this systematic bias uh, is that. So that's the, the, the error that you get sort of when you measure something again and again, sort of the systematic error is about like 20%. You also have, you know, random error that it can be like, I don't know, sometimes up to like 40%, depending on the methodology that you're using. So this is a very, very important thing to be considered when, you know, you have someone who's coming to you with a value of energy availability and, uh, and them being like extremely concerned that they have an energy availability of 29 kilocalories per kilo fat-free mass per day and they think they're in low energy availability for that day and then they have to go around to fix that issue as quick as they can when they are not really understanding that, well, there's a lot of error in calculating that value. Then on top of the calculation error, you have um, the uncertainty of what should be included in the calculation uh, and what what uh, energy expenditure should be calculate should be uh, inputted in the calculation to to have to have a value this is relatively minor considering you know the the amount of error that you can get or the compounded error from uh, energy intake and exercise energy expenditure um, but it's is important as well as you are saying you know this uh, formula was was defined with taking only into consideration excess energy expenditure for people that were in, in a lab-based uh, situation uh, and that w- who were like sedentary. So they were not, um, for example, I don't know, um, um, people who were working on uh, delivering mail, for example, who are working the whole day, right? And then their energy expenditure would be a lot higher or doing any other physical uh, activity dur- during the day. So to what extent we have to consider the other type of uh, energy expenditure as a calculation? Well, that, that is debated. Uh, at the moment, we're trying to work out this. What, what would be the, be the best approach if we're trying to bring this calculation on the field? And by saying all these things, I'm not saying that it's completely useless calculation because it can give you a rough idea of what's happening with an athlete on the field. But I think um, two things uh, should be highlighted. One of them is that um, you have to be very, very precise in the methodology that you use for calculation, and that requires that you work with professionals in the uh, assessment of energy expenditure and energy intake. 
And the second thing is that you really have to be careful in what uh, error your measurements have and what is the likelihood that the value that you're getting is, you know, certain percent, percent higher or certain percent lower. Yeah, that makes makes a ton of sense. And uh, and I, th I think it, it's a really important message always to when we're talking about any research concept or any concept for that matter, what is the potential error and uh, the uncertainty uh, within. And yeah, it's not necessarily as easy as calculating your single number and saying that, oh, I'm good or no, I'm bad because yeah, you need to consider yeah. those those factors. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned that it's very debated what low energy availability really is or where it really falls. Uh, can you talk a bit more about what we know about about where the threshold for low energy availability might be and, and what are the consequences when you are in a state of low energy availability? Yeah, so there's this uh, widespread idea that, you know, there's this, thre this threshold of like 30 kilocalories per kilo fat-free mass per day under which, you know, your body starts to respond to not having enough energy, whatever, whatever that, that means. And again, this is based in, in laboratory-based studies, excellent studies, very, very good um, uh, very well controlled and very good. There have been instrumental studies for our understanding of what is the endocrine and physiological effect of reduced energy availability. But again, we need to be careful in like how we um, translate these findings of endocrine and physiological responses to low energy availability to what they actually mean, mean on the field. Uh, so, first of all, these studies were, the majority of them were carried in, in, in sedentary females, uh, which, uh, you know, they, they are excellent, they are very, very important, but they have a number of limitations. We need more research to understand what happens in more uh, active people, in males, and, and so on. Also, we don't know what responses uh, exist to, let's say, lower levels of, uh, or let's say, higher levels of energy but for for more prolonged period of time or what happens with a more severe um, low energy availability for a shorter period of time. We sort of talk about this, this concept in the review that we wrote about like low energy availability load. So that's multiplying the time that you spend under a certain, uh, under 45 kilocalories per kilo fat-free mass for how many days. So we think there might be a, a relationship there we see a very like a, a very, like linear um, decrease in, in body mass. Uh, the, 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 the more severe the, the, the low energy availability load is, at least in short term studies. Um, but in terms of like, can we use this threshold universally? Well, there's a lot of limitations in like how, how we can consider this uh, threshold as a value that we can generalize and apply for, for, for everyone. So I would be very careful in considering whether someone is um, in low or adequate or high energy availability based on just a few assessments of, uh, you know, la la uh, um, both laboratory and uh, field-based uh, analysis, because we still need to understand uh, what all these uh, things mean. So... Yeah. Yeah, so I, I was going to say that I've, you have a, an excellent study in cyclists that is field-based and it shows uh, an incredibly large variation day-to-day -day in energy availability based on the, the exercise energy expenditure of the cyclists that on days when they did a lot of training, 
many of them ended up with an energy availability of of zero or 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 negative even and uh and and whereas on rest days or very easy days they were easily hitting 50 or 60 some of them anyway and that that sort of that sort of range was normal so they they were clearly not super uh stable in terms of how they uh, adapted their their energy intake to their energy expenditure and i think that's that was quite an interesting interesting read um but but that causes a lot of challenges when when we're doing things in the field when you can't control things as easily as in as in the lab what is the impact of uh one day having a very low energy availability and the next day having a pretty high and and then you do that repeat that potentially and and that's not something that is very well studied is it yeah no absolutely absolutely and i think this brings you know a, 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 a range of interesting topics to 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 be discussed um i think that for the most part is is quite clear that if you are in a, a very reduced amount of um energy availability uh, for a prolonged period of time they, this might you know result in, in negative consequences in a range of factors you know uh, physiological health performance etc it's very hard to draw a line and say well this is very low and this is bad there might be sort of inter-individual variation but i think it's very important to consider also that energy might be a stressor energy might be a stressor the way exercise is a stressor so the the way that we think energy potentially if that sort of generates some sort of signal for adaptation then you know as any stressor if we don't use enough of it, that then that might then that might not lead to an optimal response to training. And if you use too much of it, then that might also not lead to an optimal response to training. Of course, this is all more like hypothetical, but I think potentially that thinking energy deficit or low energy availability this way might allow us to in- investigate a little bit more what are the uh, physiological responses to training with low energy yeah and and what are the consequences let's get into that now like if you are in a chronic state of energy availability what are the potential consequences that that you might suffer yeah so i think to to reflect on this we have to travel back in time to the you know 60s 70s and 80s and start thinking about what is the all the origin of like looking in into this like what was uh, happening back then in terms of how we were understanding the this field and back in the day there was this thing that you know female athletes would, would lose their, their their menstrual cycle and it was really uh, not not understood why you know it was like oh you know what what, what is it is it like the stress of exercise itself is something else and what what is it? And there was a range of uh, a number of studies that were, were able to start teasing out that it was not the the stress of exercise itself, but the energy availability as such. What was generating a disruption, like endocrine disruption, that would um, generate a hormonal profile that would be similar to the hormonal profile of aminoric athletes, so uh, uh, female athletes that they didn't have this um, menstrual cycle and the 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 um, there was not just the lack of a menstrual cycle as an I- isolated event but there were three things uh, that were associated to in many cases coexist that were eating disorders 
low bone mineral density and stress fractures, and the lack of a menstrual cycle. So uh, in its origin, the, the, the appearance of these sort of uh, related phenomena led to the description of what is now understood as the female athlete triad. So the idea that, you know, low energy availability as such would generate a uh, sort of an endocrine profile similar to that of um, aminoric athletes um, sort of raise this flag of saying, oh, if you're in low energy availability, then there's a, a, a high chance that you're going to have, um, you know, you're going to have a um, disruption of your menstrual cycle. So uh, your, 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 your reproductive uh, function is going to be affected and the, uh, you're going to be more likely to have low bone mineral density and have stress fractures, as you know, many en endurance athletes have, particularly runners. You don't see that so much in, 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 in cyclists, though you see a lot of um, the elite cyclists uh, with a very low bone mineral density. So um, these, these have been historically the, the, main, the main concerns. And then, uh, and so it was all applied to, to females originally, saying, oh, if you have low energy availability, this is going to lead to these consequences and it's going to affect your health. Uh, and it might have, you know, potentially some effects on performance. Then uh, there was the development of the relative energy deficiency in sport, which basically says, comes after the triad, uh, and basically is a, a different model which tries to give explanation to what happened with uh, low energy availability um, and also has low energy availability as at its core in, 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 as a sort of key ethiological factor to what it sort of, uh, all the things that it generates. Um, um, uh, they, they, they also sort of describe, you know, a low bone mineral density and um, issues with uh, um, uh, uh, female reproductive function, but they also um, extrapolate this to email uh, to, to 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 males, and they also um, say that it doesn't only ha happen to uh, in these three uh, uh, things, but there are a lot of other factors that are uh, affected by low ener energy availability. So that is what these two models say. So what would it what what would examples other examples be? So the reproductive system would also be impacted in in males, and uh, and are there any other things beyond the bone mineral density and eating disorders and the menstrual cycle dysfunction that that we can add to the list as common uh, symptoms or consequences of. Uh, Red S or, or low energy availability. Yeah, yeah. So here I think we have to be very careful in um, what the model says to what the evidence really is there to support in terms of like uh, experimental data showing a, 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 a ca causal effect between changing energy and uh, these, these effects. A lot of this information is coming from cross-sectional studies from studies that don't show like direct causal effect. Um, this is this is highly uh, debated, and you know uh, the, 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 there's um, difference. Let's say, let's say between the two, if you want to call them uh, camps, in terms of you know the beliefs, in terms of what uh, low energy availability uh, may uh, affect. 
um, I invite you know to the to the readers of your uh, or to the listeners of your your of your podcast to potentially read the consensus statement, and you will see um, it, uh, in, in relation to relative energy efficiency in sport, and you will say a whole range of uh, things uh, there that are supposedly um, uh, caused by uh, low energy availability which, you know, support is contentious, really. So I couldn't really uh, stand behind this and say, well, this is de for, de for definite happen. It's very, very interesting. There might be a lot of other things that might be affected. Um, you know, there's a little bit of evidence to show that there might be um, um, some effects on, 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 on uh, hematological factors related to a, a production of uh, red blood cells and hemoglobin mass and, and so on. And there's like a whole other uh, range of things that the, this model is supposed to, um, uh, or, or the models that are there are supposed to happen. Okay, yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And uh, I did have Margot Mountjoy, Dr. Margot Mountjoy on to talk about the consensus statement a couple of years ago. So I'll link to that episode as well but it's definitely really interesting to hear that yeah there's there's that i guess discrepancy between clear causal evidence and and uh, everything that's included in the model good good to know and uh, what about diagnosis and and detection of uh, low energy availability what what can you say about how that works today I suppose there's um, there's many things to say, but the, the main thing is that we don't really have a way to diagnose it, really. Um, so from 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 my perspective, so there the, there are a whole range of um, endocrine parameters that change when you put someone in a state of low energy availability, and when you bring when we bring someone in the lab, you see you know things that that change quite uh, drastically and quite quick. You know if you look at IGF-1, like leptin, you know, insulin, um, um, you know, luteinizing hormone potentially, like, like in, 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 um, in both in males and females. It seems there's effect on, on in testosterone as well. Uh, and, you know, the, 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 the list goes on and on. T3. Um, the thing is that, you know, you think that, well, you maybe go to your, your clinician and you say like, okay, give me a full test, uh, a full uh, analysis of all these, these blood parameters. But then what you're going to find is that in the vast majority of the cases, um, these values are going to fall within um, sort of a physiological range. So your clinician is going to look at the, the, the results of the test and they're going to go like, well, you know, yeah, it's maybe on the lower end, but everything is normal. So the thing is that what this gives us an idea that really the, your body is having a physiological response to low energy availability. So in that sense, it's very hard to diagnose from a blood test, for example. Um, but this might give you an idea of maybe something like what's, what's going on there in terms of like underfueling potentially. Um, we know from, you know, before we knew about this, that endurance athletes have, uh, male endurance athletes tend to have like a degree of hypogonadism, like having a lower level of uh, testosterone, for, for example, and that there is a prevalence uh, in uh, amenorrhea in, in females and low estrogen levels. Um, so in that case, to detect potentially a chronic 
uh, existence of low energy availability is a lot easier uh, in, fe- in females than it is in males. Uh, in, in that sense, the fact that uh, females have a menstrual cycle and, of course, men don't, uh, it makes it a lot easier to detect potentially it's been a chronic underfueling in a female. This doesn't mean that necessarily a female would stop their menstrual bleeding if they are uh, with lower energy availability, but the likelihood increases. Also, it might be that they have a menstrual bleeding, but they don't ovulate. So there's a, there's a whole continuum of uh, me- menstrual uh, disturbances that go beyond um, uh, amenorrhea. Um, other things that maybe could be used to diagnose uh, that someone is being chronic low energy availability is that they have a low resting metabolic rate compared to what should be predicted using a predicted formula. So you bring someone in the lab, run a resting metabolic rate test, and then compare that to what it would be predicted. But again, resting metabolic rate is a rather noisy measurement, um, and it depends what sort of formula you use to uh, compare your predicted versus your measured. It depends on the equipment that you're using. So you have to be really, really careful also on how you, um, uh, um, how, how you uh, estimate um, the, 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 or how you calculate and estimate this, uh, this value. So there's really no one single tool that is going to tell you, oh, this person has, you know, chronic low energy availability. You know, it's a, it's a bit of a gray, gray area, you know, um, it's, it's hard to say that, you know, you can diagnose someone with this sort of uh, syndrome, let's say, based, based on, on, on a few parameters. Also, because so many things have been associated to, um, um, you know, having low energy availability, that it seems that uh, many, many signs could be a reason for someone uh, suffering from this and not uh, other things. So I think the field is at, at a stage in which we cannot really say unequivocally someone has had uh, low energy availability for a prolonged period of time unless we do, you know, a very careful consideration of their dietary energy intake, look at their training, and we look at holistically um, how this uh, person is uh, uh, responding to their training, how they are feeling, how they are feeling, and so on. Yeah, no, that's that's a good answer. Uh, it's uh, obviously clearly not very easy or very evident, but um, but yeah, it it def- definitely gives gives us the full picture of what we know and what we don't know about about di- diagnosing uh, the issue. So with that, what would you say? I might come back to some more research based question a bit later, but but I want to make sure that we get some practical take-home messages uh, out to the listeners so I, I guess a lot of listeners will fall in in one of two camps and hopefully one is significantly bigger than the other one camp is the listeners that are completely fine but they want to make sure that they don't fall into an issue of chronic low energy energy availability in the future through their endurance training and then we maybe have one camp where listeners might suspect that maybe maybe i could be suffering a bit and and under fueling a bit and and could this be something that that is going on for me so so do you have any practical take-home messages or any any advice that you would give to uh to either one or to both of those two camps yeah well i think 
it's it's hard to give a you know one one size uh, fits all uh, re- recommendation. Uh, I understand how alluring it can be for many endurance athletes to try to drop weight and you know improve their power to weight ratio and 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 so on. Particularly for those athletes in uh, like road cycling and, and 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 stuff and running, you know, where potentially dropping weight might might be of of uh, a little bit of a um, benefit to. Um, um, to improve their, their their performance, I think um, an easy uh, an easy win for most the vast majority of athletes, I would say, um, in in a in a in a in a range of endurance sports, is really being careful with their carbohydrate intake and really pay attention to to match their carbohydrate intake to their um, tr- training load. I think in in these in these cases um, we see that that many many athletes are really really under fueling, um, and uh, it being um, uh, advertently or inadvertently, um, you know, if you do this for a for a prolonged period of time, it's going to come and, and and bite you back. Um, I think you know uh, I am not. I'm, 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 I'd say I'm not uh, so conservative in terms of being fearful of someone being for, for a little period of time in, uh, low energy availability. The problem is when it, when it becomes chronic. Um, and I think one of the main things that we have to be careful about are eating disorders. I must, uh, give a full disclaimer here that I'm not an expert or anything, uh, close to that, to eating disorders. But I think uh, a lot of the time the the underpinning issue is disorder eating or eating disorders rather than um, uh, um, the, the the effect of of, uh, of energy itself. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm giving you like a, a right answer to the question that you that you were asking me, but um, I think there are a lot of other uh, issues related to like uh, anxiety and depression that might. Uh, as well have a, um, an endocrine effect and it is, goes beyond my uh, my knowledge really um but I, I, that, that those those are my my recommendations i'm not particularly fearful of uh, a short periods of uh, low energy availability um, but you have to be careful that you are not getting into this state for a prolonged period of time um if you are concerned that you might be in the in the camp that is um, potentially under fueling, I would you know the first thing that I would potentially do is start looking at your uh, carefully at your carbohydrate intake. So not think so much about like the calories themselves. Of course, this is very very important. Protein intake is very important, but start thinking about how you are matching your training load, your day to day training load the volume and intensity of your training to the current carbohydrate recommendations for uh, adaptation and performance. Yeah, no, that's all really good, uh, really good advice. Uh, One thing that I wanted to ask about, if you're somebody that that is trying to lose weight, um, does, does low energy availability have any implications? For example, would you say that it always makes sense to try to lose it slowly with a with a small energy deficit because then it's so easier to stay at a relatively high or okay energy availability compared to if you try to lose it quickly, in which case you would basically have to go to a pretty low energy availability. Yeah. 
Well, I think the first thing that you have to think about if you're trying to lose weight is why you're trying to lose weight. Um, the second thing is like losing weight is pretty easy. Uh, comparatively, the heartbeat is keeping it down. Um, then what you have to consider uh, then, you know, after, after you, 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 you've thought about these things is, of course, it's like the, 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 the potential uh, risk and, and benefit, you know, like how, how risky it can be for, for your performance and potential for your health if, you know, lose, losing weight um, is something that you really want. And then in terms of like doing it slowly or doing fast, uh, then you have to look at your training plan and uh, particularly pay attention at the uh, high intensity bits of your training plan and how you're going to fuel those efforts. The more aggressive you are with your train, with your um, weight loss, the more careful you have to be with how you're fueling the, the hard efforts for the ones that you really need to, that muscle glycogen and, and carbohydrates to be, to be able to, to fuel them. So if you try to apply sort of a blanket sort of low energy availability, like energy deficit throughout and you are uh, chronically under eating carbohydrates, then your training is definitely going to suffer. But then if you think your uh, nutrition in a meal-by-meal basis, in a day-to-day basis, based on how hard you're training, when, um, and then you fuel the, each of the efforts accordingly, then this, this is going to have a, a significant impact in how well you can manage that weight loss. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And... Uh... Do we have any information or even any just educated guesses about what the prevalence of low energy availability among endurance athletes is? And that's that's part one of the question. And part two is, uh, is there a very significant uh, trend in that athletes training at a higher volume, let's say professional uh, road cyclists, professional triathletes and so on, that would tend to have a very high volume that they are clearly the most afflicted with low energy availability and prevalence is highest there or or do you think that it can be quite common across the board even among amateurs training at slightly lesser volumes than the professionals yeah um so these are great questions i think um first of all it's important to understand uh, we have we have to sort of stop fearing and, and, and vilifying, you know, someone going into a little bit of uh, an energy, low energy availability and, and energy deficit. Um, so, you know, when we talk about like prevalence, it sounds like we're talking about like some sort of disease. Um, I think what we need to take a, 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 a hard look on is, is, is really like the, the, the potential negative effects, you know, when we start thinking about uh, things that are, that are really serious, like uh, stre- stress fractures and, and, and and so on. Of course, we don't want to never get to, to that point to say that some that something is bad, and that's what we w- we would want to uh, try to to prevent. But my point here, um, you know, when you talk about uh, high level athletes and, and and endurance athletes and low energy availability, and you look at the frequency that in which they potentially they might be, uh, depending where we draw where we draw the line, then you might say, well, you know, all these people have a prevalence of a, like. You know, if you look at the, the, the cyclist papers that, that we publish, we say, well, there's a prevalence of 100% of, of low energy availability there if you look at, you know, certain days. 
Um, so I think we need to be careful uh, with that. But, you know, going to the specifics of your question, and, you know, I'm trying to be nuanced when, when I, when I um, um, get into this topic because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. Yes, there is a relationship between, you know, athletes who do sports that are weight-bearing or where, you know, weight is an important uh, factor and sort of um, stress fractures as well as there is a, tr a relationship between a higher training volumes and um, and stress fractures. So these really are um, things that, you know, the, 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 that in a way they can predict the likelihood of, someone um, potentially being uh, exposed for a prolonged period of time to low energy availability. If you look at more um, sort of cross-sectional data and comparison between males and females, uh, then it seems that females are about like three times more likely to have a stress fracture uh, than, than, than male, you know, looking at, at um, data from... Um, uh, tr trainings like la large, large numbers of uh, uh, females and males exercising in the army, for example, uh, the, the likelihood of, of fractures is a lot higher in, in females than, than in males. So uh, risk factors, you know, for the, the most serious th things are, you know, high training loads uh, in runners, for example, more than 11 hours a, a week. That's uh, um, uh, um, a risk factor. Uh, being involved in a sport where you know body weight is uh, a, a concern or not, not, not a concern, or like uh, individuals try to get leaner, and and being and being female, there seems to be the more risk there. And with the female versus male comparison, there uh, is it because females are, let's say, they have a a, a higher threshold or a lower threshold to. They're more sensitive to low energy availability, or or is it maybe that they're they're just not fueling as much, so they are more likely to be in a state of low energy availability, uh, irrespective of maybe having the same sensitivity as males? Do we know? Do we know that? No, we don't know. That's that's a great question, actually. No, we don't know. Uh, well, at, at least I don't know. Maybe someone someone knows and they can tell me. Um, but as far as I know, let's say, you know, there's. Um, I think there's only one study uh, comparing head-to-head -head males versus females in terms of like low energy availability and sort of markers of, of uh, uh, bone metabolism, for example. Uh, and then there's, you know, comparison between studies that seem to suggest that, you know, to similar levels of uh, energy availability, um, uh, females' uh, endocrine responses are more likely to be affected. Um, and then we have all this epidemiological data that you show that shows that uh, you are like a lot less more likely to have a stress fracture in your exercise if you are a female than if you are if you are a male. Uh, why is that the case? We don't really know. Um, it you know we can uh, go into uh, speculating about it and maybe think about you know because cost of reproduction is a lot higher. Um, uh, in in females is some sort of like protective mechanism um, that um, versus you know in in males where cost of reproduction if is 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 nil compared to um, to to females you know just to, to to give you an idea over the course of like nine months of uh, gestation for a, for a female there's an energy expenditure of about seventy thousand calories. Um, so it might be protective both for the uh, for the for the baby and for the mother 
uh, not to uh, um, incur in um, in such a high uh, energy expenditure if there's not enough energy available. So whether that that you know the response uh, to low energy availability is um, adaptive or maladaptive in, in in females, that is information that I really don't think I'm prepared to uh, defend with any sort of s- stronger evidence. And I just said not at this time, at least. Yeah. I know we're coming up on time. Do you have five minutes to do a final question and the rapid fire questions, or do you have to go? Do you have a... Yeah, no, uh, let's like, do it. Okay. So so the final question on, on this topic is, what would you say are the top future research directions that, that you would like to see the field take? What are the top questions that, that we should try to answer next that are unanswered so far? Well, um, we're working on it. <laughs> Stay tuned. Um, so some of the things that I would really like to see is the effect of low energy availability in uh, a muscle adaptation. Um, we have some data coming up on that. So stay tuned. I would like to see a little bit more uh, whether it is uh, low energy or low carbohydrate availability. Uh, we have some really, really interesting data coming up on that as well. Uh, I would really like to see if actually uh, uh, low energy availability as such uh, affects performance uh, that's highly debated. You know, if you have low energy availability, you also have low carbohydrate availability, and we know carbohydrates are very important for performance. But if you control for that in a state of low energy availability, I'm not that sure that it actually has a negative effect on performance unless you reach to some sort of like breaking point, for example, if you break a bone. Uh, other than that, I think we need to understand better whether, you know, energy, I think it's like locomotion is so, so important for survival that I think the body prioritizes that above everything else in terms of allocating resources. And it's only like after, you know, it's um, all the other systems are affected that locomotion and, you know, the capacity for physical performance starts being affected. But, you know, this is hypothetical at this point, but I think that would be really, really interesting to test. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. And is there, is there anything that we have missed, anything else that you would like to mention about uh, low energy availability? Oh, I think I could speak about this for days, but uh, I think we uh, brushed over like a, a few things. So uh, I, there's nothing on top of my mind that I think we should uh, sort of jump into at the moment. Right. So let's finish off with the rapid fire questions. So take one sentence to answer each of these. And the first one is, what's your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports? Oh, PubMed. And what's an important habit that you have benefited from athletically, professionally, or personally? Resilience. Keep moving forward despite failing. And who is somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? Oh, there are many people. But I think in uh, the academic world, um, both uh, Ben Saltzin and uh, Louise Burke have really been uh, inspirational for me. And uh, finally, where can people find you and, and follow you and, and your work? Yeah, so... Um, the only social media that I'm still using is uh, Twitter. Uh, and my Twitter handle is JL Areta for Jose Lisandro Areta. Um, yeah, that's, that's me at JL Areta in Twitter. Perfect. Uh, and I'll link to your ResearchGate profile as well, where you have uh, some of your papers are, are uh, open to access there. And, and I'll link to some of them as well. Uh, for example, you wrote a, a really good review in 2021, or it was published in 2021, on the topic that for anybody that wants a, a bit of a, a more detailed, but still good introduction to the topic, uh, introduction level 
I guess you you can read it as an introduction to the topic if you're not so familiar with it. That's a great place to start, I think. And uh, and then there are some other papers as well that people can find from your profile. Uh, yeah, but thank you so much, uh, Jose. It was great to chat to you. I really, uh, I learned a lot and uh, I definitely will stay tuned and hope to talk to you again when you have some uh, some more studies published. Thank you, Mike. It's been lovely to, ta- to chat to you and uh, yeah, yeah, reach out anytime that I can help. So um, I'm happy to help. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. I found it extremely fascinating and I learned a lot. One thing that uh, Jose and I discussed after the interview was that there are a couple of screening questionnaires, the LEAF-Q and the LEAM-Q, which uh, stands for uh, low energy availability in females and in males, respectively, and the Q is for questionnaire. So I'll put links to those in the show notes. They can be quite useful tools if you want to do a little screen of yourself to see whether you uh, suffer from many symptoms or any symptoms associated with low energy availability. As we discussed, diagnosis is difficult. Uh, so screening is not diagnosis, but but these uh, questionnaires can be quite helpful to see if you need to maybe uh, maybe seek more professional help, I guess, and, and get go deeper into something or if there's uh, no problem whatsoever. At this point, recording right after the interview, I have uh, a few main thoughts and takeaways uh, in my head that I wanted to share, uh, partially because I'm recording right after the interview, so it's easy for me to remember what I'm thinking, uh, and also because this interview uh, wasn't too long, so, so I feel like I have time to do a bit of a longer outro, and sometimes I, I just feel like I I don't want to make the episode even longer than it already is when we have really long interviews. Uh, but for this one, uh, I think that, first of all, the thing that comes to mind is that it's really difficult with the limited research available to pinpoint a threshold for what is actually low energy availability and uh, also knowing whether we're talking about load as a combination of time and the magnitude of energy availability. Uh, so so it's, yeah, it's still, I guess under investigation what what really is is it that makes you suffer symptoms and suffer consequences uh, versus just uh, seeing a number calculated for your energy availability. Uh, If we use conventional thresholds of 30 kilocalories per kilogram fat-free mass per day as the threshold for low energy availability, so below that you would be in the low territory, uh, then it's not necessarily a problem to be in that territory for a day or two every once in a while. Uh, as uh, Jose said, it's when it's more chronic that it becomes problematic. But here, the quest- open-ended question is that what is what, what is chronic enough? What is too much? So there's lots of things to figure out. And while it can be fun to uh, calculate where you stand in terms of energy availability and what your numbers are, uh, it's important to remember, as we discussed at the beginning, that the, there's big uncertainty around the accuracy of that kind of number. Uh, but even if you assume that it is accurate, then interpreting it is uh, not a very straightforward manner. And I think this is uh, something that um yeah i ha- i have learned uh, now through this discussion with jose that that i that wasn't necessarily as clear to me before uh so definitely um good to always be learning and uh, and understanding these these kinds of things better for sure the general principle of fueling well is uh remains and uh because if you don't leave enough uh 
enough for the fundamental functions of the body after exercise energy expenditure then eventually it will come back to bite you so so that's a pretty straightforward takeaway uh, but uh, yeah there's lots of, there, there's lots to this topic and uh, lots still to be discovered i think it's fascinating i hope you enjoyed it too i will have quite a number of uh, of uh, links in the show notes both to research papers as i mentioned i really recommend the review that uh, jose wrote in 2021 which is called low energy availability history definition and evidence of its endocrine metabolic and physiological effects in prospective studies in females and males but also uh, really if you want to check out those questionnaires the leaf q and lean q then those are worth investigating and of course, at the interview that I did with uh, Margot Mountjoy back in episode 233 on uh, Red S is uh, still very much worthwhile and uh, and evergreen content, really. So, so I recommend listening to that as well if you are interested in in this topic. Now, uh, if you want to improve your triathlon performance or work to achieve your next goal, big or small, then consider working with a professional coach or a good training plan to give you the best possible chance. You can find out more about our coaching services, our coaches, and our training plans on scientifictriathlon.com. And uh, I want to point out that before committing to work with a coach, you will always have a free no-obligation call with them to make sure it's a good fit for you and for the coach. And uh, also regarding the training plans, if you purchase them directly from from us, so not from Training Peaks, but uh, the the versions that we have on the website, then there is a 100% money back guarantee if you're not happy with the plan. Uh, so that's also a good incentive if you have been hesitating about getting a plan. If you have any questions, just email me and I'm happy to discuss and help figure out what the best option for you might be. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Form, that you can find on formswim.com forward slash TTS. Improve your swim training with real-time metrics like pace stroke rate and heart rate and advanced post swim analysis and use the code tts15 to get 15% off the form smart swim goggles and thank you to senate use the senate swim trainer to improve your technique power stamina and swim training consistency you can try the senate risk-free for up to 30 days and get a special tts bundle that includes the senate swim trainer and a number of senate training plans and on-demand workouts on senatesweamtrainer.com forward slash tts thank you as always for listening keep training smart and keep loving triathlons